Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. And it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came uh, up to show Him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things assuredly? I say to you that not one stone shall be left there here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as He sat on the Mount of Olives, His disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered and He said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. By the way, the word sorrows there is the word udin, and udin means birth pangs. So we will have the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Pray with me if you would, please. Lord, even as we sung, come quickly, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Even here, Lord, reveal, manifest Yourself. But Lord, we know that there could be at any moment that You could just come and take Your children home. And we're, we're happy with that. We're okay with that. And I pray today, Lord, that You would do a radical, beautiful, powerful work in each of us. Speak in a manner we can understand, that we get, that, we, that it would just click with us. And that today, Lord, our eyes be open and our hearts ignited and our spirits, Lord, grown, grown fervor so that, Lord, today we could actually find ourselves right where You want us. Lord, have Your way, please. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, immerse me and come upon me to do through me what I cannot humanly do. And then speak to each one of us perfectly, individually, right where we need to hear you, but also, Lord, as a family as well. And Lord, open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive, Lord, what you have for us now. And we pray you would bless this time. May we have so much fun in your word. Redeem every second, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Well, it's been a really exciting couple months uh, we've watched here, of course. First, it was Brexit. And, of course, uh, the tantrums that would ensue from that, uh, even though the people voted. And then, of course, it was the presidency and the tantrums that ensued because of that and the people because the people voted. And, of course, now they're thinking, of course, the next thing is that Honey G is probably going to win the X Factor. It just seems like it runs in line. And, and, and all of this, people are yelling the end of the world, and they are going mental over all of this. So could this be a more fitting time to go over this particular topic? 
Now, my goal is, of course, to cover these first 14 verses as Jesus chips away at each of these particular subjects. Notice there'll be three questions asked. But then, ultimately, next week we'll take a diversion, just because it just seems so appropriate to do an overview of the book of Revelation. Because it just seems like it's a book that people freak out over, and they avoid, and it's the one book that it says, blessed is he who reads and keeps and does the things in this book. It's the one book you could be promised to be blessed if you read it and did it. That's kind of a fun thought. I could see why the enemy would try to keep you from reading it. And of course, doing it. Now, with that in mind, that will be then then the following week. That will be week three. Then we'll try to follow up with at least the majority, if not all, of the rest of the text in this particular uh, chapter. So at least you kind of know. So that means next week, we get to go through the book of Revelation and then have a sit-down feast with each other. How fun is that? Now, I I, I did kind of put things into perspective here. Notice, by the way, this is a private message. The disciples come and ask him because of these first couple verses. Uh, Mark 13.1 says that the guys are actually trying to start kind of a conversation. Here it tells us they kind of came up to him. Jesus is sitting in some quiet place where he can breathe and pray on the Mount of Olives. So he's a Sabbath day journey away. Jerusalem's just right in front of him. We've been there many times. And that puts him in a really interesting place. There at the Mount of Olives, to his left would be the town of Bethany, which is actually where Jesus would spend the night. That's the area of Lazarus, Simon the leper, more than likely spending the night with, uh, you know, sleeping with uh, that family, uh, spending the time at their house. Uh, We never read that Jesus ever spends the night in Jerusalem, but why would you if anyone's trying to kill you there anyways? So he's got Lazarus and his sisters. That would be a much warmer house to stay in. Uh, That's beside, that's to his left. Above him will be some place where Jesus is going to ascend. By the end of this book, Jesus will ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. That will happen on the Mount of Olives. Tomorrow, in this text, because it's roughly Wednesday by the time he asks or he answers these questions, the following day, tomorrow, that's Thursday for him, will be the day that he'll head just down from this. Because it is the Mount of Olives, just down before this, towards the bottom of it, is the Olive Press. Or as we would say in the Hebrew, Gethsemane, which is where we get the word Gethsemane. Jesus will be arrested just below him the following day, which John tells us Jesus often met there with his disciples to pray. So it's a place that he made himself easy to find. So tomorrow he'll be arrested. The following day he'll be murdered. Two more days after that he'll be resurrected. That's where we're at with regards to this. But I wanted to kind of put things in a contemporary perspective and then we'll dig into our text. It occurred to me that uh, we've all kind of had our time in school. Well, some of you may actually still be in school to whatever degree. But for the most part, the sort of forced part of school is done. Now, for most people, school is a place like, kind of like young prison to escape from. Now, that's a little rough because my wife and I were both professional teachers. So we kind of knew. There were those guys that would have happily gnawed off their arm to sneak out of class and never come back. We get that. And for the most part, most of the guys there, they just, even if life was kind of lame, it just wasn't as lame as school in their opinion. So they had some other life to go to. So, so leaving school wasn't that bad of an idea. Now, for some, there was, there, and then there was always that individual or two that couldn't wait to get out of school because they had something waiting for them. That was me at the time. I didn't know the Lord. I was in a band. We were about to go on tour. It was a very big deal at the time. Uh, lots of coverage. And so, so I was out of school when I came, if that makes sense. 
You know, and because of that, I didn't really make any real close relationships with anyone around me. Uh, and basically, unless I thought somehow I wanted to do something stupid like take them on tour with us. So all of that said, I had another life waiting for me, so I couldn't wait to get out of school. But then there was always those guys. I don't know if there's maybe ladies, there's girls like this too, but there was always a few guys, you know, he's the captain of the football team or the wrestling team or whatever. And for him, like secondary school was it. It was the deal. And if they could have their way, they would freeze time and permanently be in secondary school. As a matter of fact, they kind of do intellectually or emotionally. And they kind of, you know, they hit, they hit 30 and they're still going back to that great game that was played when they were 16. You know, and it's like they just can't get past that thing. I mean, now they're fat and bald and they couldn't run the 440. They couldn't run the 440 at all. Uh, but back then, they, you know, and of course, the older they get, the quicker they were. I get all that. But the reason why that is, is that they didn't want school to end was because school was all they had. And school was pretty good for them. And because school was pretty good for them, they were like, if you were to tell them, man, let me tell them, I want to warn you, June is coming, and in June you're kind of leaving here, you would be giving them the worst possible news ever. Because they didn't have a life outside of it. It was all they had. Enter into the events that take place these days. You know, the Christians have been saying it's the end of the world since the first century. Now, the scientists have finally caught up. But how do we respond to that? When people start talking about, oh, my goodness, there's the global warming or the global cooling or the global catastrophes and the this and the that and the holes in the ozone. And now, of course, the problem is cows, as you're probably aware. And and we should have gone organic earlier and we should have let our our chickens be free range. And, of course, and the reason I say that is, is when you start talking about the end of the world, People freak out, and for good reason. But Christians should never do that. For Christians, we know that there is life so far beyond this, and it's going to be so much better. That when people start talking about the end of the world, we, the first thing we want to do is jump onto some crazy social issue. Now, look, at social issues aren't bad in and of themselves, but we're the only representatives of the life beyond that. Imagine if you were sort of a university rep and you went to speak to somebody and they were still trapped in the mindset of the school. You kind of want to get them out of that and remind them there is something really good beyond this because you represent a school that you want them to go to. As Christians, let's face it, if if I can just be honest and candid or if I will just blunt with you, uh, we're on the Titanic whether we like it or not. We can polish it all we want, but sooner or later this baby's going to sink. It has an expiration date. And whether we like it or not, it's going to. The issue isn't whether or not we can keep this boat floating forever. Now, again, I'm not telling you be responsible, but I am telling you be wise with exactly the resources you do have. And first and foremost, we represent the world beyond the boat. So when the world starts talking about how the world is going down, what do we do? We should be the ones that say, well, so if it is going to go down, what is your contingency plan beyond it? Because mine's good. I'm, I'm, I'm upset. And you can call me whatever you want. But I'm the last guy to freak out over this whole situation. Now the disciples have met with Jesus. And they're, if you will, it appears as if they're kind of doing small talk, if you will. They're just kind of, wow, look how beautiful these buildings are. Isn't this lovely? And Jesus kind of just rains on the whole thing. And he's like, yeah, but that's not what I see. I mean, initially, from the surface, it just kind of looks like they're like, you know, nice weather. And it's like, now it's going to rain in an hour. And you're like, thanks a lot. You know, that's a kind of that kind of attitude. But you realize Jesus is looking because Jesus is never going to get trapped in the moment. 
He's going to, he can live the moment, but he's never going to get trapped in it enough so that he disconnects himself from the eternity that he represents. So while they're looking and going, look at how beautiful these buildings are for this moment they're standing, tall and they're adorned with, and it tells us they're adorned with beautiful, you know, uh, gems and with beautiful donations. And look at how beautiful this is. Jesus says, you know, but for the moment it may look like that, but I see beyond this moment and beyond this moment, this is a very sad scene. Right now, get the postcard, get the shirt, wear it when you want to, put it on your blog. But sooner or later, what you're going to see, what I see is a devastation that is in no way picturesque. It is only horrible. And imagine the guys are like, oh, well, I guess that wasn't the route to take. So they kind of wipe that wound off of them for a moment. But somewhere down the line, Jesus then goes back up to that hill and he's praying and he's looking at the same place he was telling them about. And they go, hey, could you fill us in a little bit on this? And though it's a private message between Jesus and these men, it couldn't be that private because God made sure that at least three different guys wrote this thing down for us to read. So it wasn't just for them, it was for us too. God knew you would be sitting in that pew, 2016, listening to this. And he knew that this needed to be written down for you to hear. And me too, by the way. I think it's interesting. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, which means this is Jesus' second Sermon on the Mount, if you will. The first, if you will, roughly 85 miles north in the area of Capernaum and Galilee, when Jesus, if you remember, speaks in Matthew 5 to a group of people who have been revolutionized physically because of what Jesus has done for them. And he starts to give them, if you will, a new believer's message. That's chapters 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. But here, Jesus is on another mount. It's another sermon. And it's interesting. The first one was a new believer's message, and the second was about the end of the world. So look at it with me, if you will. It tells us, by the way, again, in verse 4. Let me say this. Verse 3 is the questions. But notice, by the way, first of all, let's get clear. They've asked three questions. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. Do you see the three questions? When will these things be? Well, Jesus just talked about Jerusalem's destruction, so there has to be that. Then what will be the sign of your coming? Now understand, the disciples did not view or expect any form of rapture or anything along those lines. The only thing that they could see from what they were being taught was that Jesus was going to show up, or the Messiah was going to show up, kick all of the enemies of Israel until they're down and they can't get back up, and then established the kingdom of Israel, reinstated as the greatest kingdom on the planet. And we know this even in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is about to ascend, they say, oh, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So clearly that's on their mind. So when they're asking, what they're, they're not asking when it will be the, the elements of a rapture, although Jesus is going to throw that in anyways. But they're like, so when is it that you're going to show up and we're going to restore the kingdom and all that's going to take place? And what will be the signs of the end of the age? When will this whole thing be wrapped up? Jesus goes right for the hardest of them, the last of them. And our first 14 verses directly address this issue. Well, let's talk about the end of the world then. But I want to remind you, for the disciples, that wasn't bad news. For the disciples, they knew this. Jesus would leave. And if you remember, the last thing he says is, Behold, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you through this whole time. And then when the end of the age is over, we get to spend eternity together. But please hear me on this. One thing we know as Christians is that Jesus, as our example, 
that death was not the end. It was the beginning of another thing. Jesus' death paid for our sins. His resurrection showed us there is a birth at that death, a new life that starts at the end of the other. And if we don't embrace that, all we have at best is a ticket to heaven, and that's nothing like what Scripture teaches. Well, when the end of this age is over, there's a whole new life, a world, a universe without sin, without even the presence of it. And for that I say, Lord, come quickly. For all the things that John will see, by the way, in the book of Revelation, if it was so horrible that it traumatized them like it could us as we read some of it, why would he say at the end, oh, Lord, come quickly? What's clear is seeing Jesus come overrode all of the other things. The same way that it says in Scripture that a woman, when she's in labor, he says it's not easy. He says it's horrible. It's a rough time. But when she holds that baby, she soon forgets the pain for the baby. And if you don't think that's true, for the people who even have the hardest uh, childbirth often, what you find is they still have six more kids. So that tells you somewhere down the lane they had to forget about something because they're like, oh, no, not everyone's like that. My wife's like, look at the second one, we're adopting. Let's just make that clear right now. But you get the idea that even the hardest of those pains, it isn't just that the pain was so hard, but it was temporary. It's just that what you got on the other side of it was so beautiful and so wonderful. It made it worth it. This, yesterday, we had the privilege of holding two of those beautiful gifts. So these guys are asking, and we, we, we'd love to know. So the first 14 verses, Jesus is going to pick off this issue, then, if you will. Verses 4 to 6 is a preface, if you will. And then we have 7 to 8, 9 and 10, and 11 to 14 are these sort of three stages. So I'd like you to consider it like this. Think it, if you will, if we're on a bus. We're on a bus, and on the front of that bus it says, end of the world, the end of the age. And it's going to make three stops along the way. Each stop, and if you, of course, you've, you've ridden the bus, that's what we do here, you know that with each stop that gets closer to your stop, you know, okay, that's that stop. Okay, I've only got a couple more left, and then I know I need to get off of this thing. Well, I want you to recognize that's what he's going to do here. He's going to walk us to three steps. But he starts us with this in the preface. Look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus answered, and he said to them, Take heed, uh, blepo, take heed means, if you will, well, look at, yo, Pete, this, get a hold of this. Carefully embrace this, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, first of all, notice Jesus is going to say in verses 4 to 6, from verses 4 to 6, he says, look, at, here's a couple of things that people look at a lot, but you need to know these are not the telltale signs of the end of the, uh, of the age. Because the end is not going to be because of these things. Do not let yourself be deceived. Notice he uses the word twice, once in verse 4 and once in verse 5. Deception, notice this seems to be an area of a hotbed of deception. The word deception, by the way, or deceived, planajo, it means to be gone astray, to be led to wander. So what he's saying, look, at, be careful. So the guys ask, Crystal, so when is this going to be? And before Jesus just starts laying out facts, he says, you need to be aware of this first. Certain areas are going to be areas where they will lead you astray. They'll make you wander. And here are the two things according to this. First is, did you notice false Christs? There's a whole lot of people that are going to show up and say, hey, I'm actually Jesus. Or I'm actually the Messiah. I'm actually the true prophet. 
And if they're going to compromise to gain a little bigger audience, they might say, well, Jesus was a good prophet, but I'm the next one. But Jesus says, this is not the end of the world. Oh, these are necessary stops, but this is not the end of the world. And part of this I need to ask is, do you have the right Jesus? Now, no doubt, there have been at least 1,100 people in the last two years that have actually claimed to be, in one way or another, the incarnate Jesus. Whether that's a French race car driver, or whether that was, you know, several years ago, the kind of guy from Waco, Texas, that said he was the sinful Messiah, to the guy that came from South Korea that said he was Jesus incarnate. Oh, he just woke up one day and realized it. And yet, in with each of these cases, we don't look at it and go, well, clearly the end of the world's here because this nut's here. But as Christians, do you have the real Jesus? Not the mamby-pamby Jesus, but let me say a Jesus of balance. Let me give you three things, and this is just, I'm going to go quickly through that. I just want to ponder these. One is Romans 11:22, where we're, we're told to, to contemplate the goodness and the severity of God. Jesus is both good and severe. He's, he's tender and kind, but he also knows how to clean house. But let's face it, wouldn't you want that, ladies, out of a husband? Somebody that could be tender and kind to you, but also strong and, def- and someone to defend you if someone were to come at you to harm you. I mean, somebody that was all just sort of like Barney, the purple dinosaur. You know, you, maybe you'd be nice for a hug here and there, but I don't know if you'd feel really comfortable walking down the street with the guy. You need to realize he's both. In John chapter 1, it tells us, in their second of the three of these things, these balances, tells us that the law came through Moses, but I believe it's 1.14 says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is you get what you don't deserve, but he's also somebody that won't compromise truth to give it to you. Jesus is never going to compromise the truth just to make you feel good. The third balance is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when we read that Jesus came to seek and to save. Do you have that Jesus? The one who came looking for people, but he came looking for them to save them. Well, having said that, remember the same one that said, neither do I condemn you, was the same one who said, go and sin no more. So if we abuse that grace, we may not actually be embracing the right Jesus here. But Jesus says, be really careful, you guys. Don't let anyone rob you, make you wander, make you go astray by calling themselves me. But it's clearly not me. Also, the second thing, verse 6. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. But don't be troubled. The word there, throachel, means to be clamorous, if you will, to be frightened, to wail, to freak out. It's like, if you will, when you're watching a horror film and that thing jumps out with a knife or whatever and you're like, ah! He goes, don't be like that! For all these things, notice, must come to pass, but the end is not yet. They are essential, but they are not telltale. We, wars are not the gauge for the end of the world. Did you see that's what he's saying? But now think about this. Because this was how cults are born. The whole idea that the first world war, let's face it, it looked like the end of the world, didn't it? I mean, especially here. I like it seemed like the entire world was grabbing a gun and shooting at someone. Then let's add the Second World War. Now you have, of course, the advent of things like nuclear weaponry. 
But if someone were to talk about the Third World War, ask anyone, if there was a Third World War, would that be the end of the world? And see how many people tell you yes. See how many people within the church tell you yes. But this is what Jesus says. There are going to be wars. Well, there's going to be a whole lot of them. Don't worry, there'll be wars. And they will even be, and we're going to see here in a moment, they're going to go global. But that is not what you're to look for to really see the end of the world. And if you were kind of like me, I'm kind of a conspiracy theorist guy by nature, and I think it's just that my brain doesn't shut off when when I want it to sometimes. So don't even get me started on things like Michael Jordan. But when we get to things like this, I have to look at this, and I realize how Jesus is saying the whole purpose behind this is two things, notice. One is that you don't get deceived, and the other is that you don't freak out. Did you notice? What Christians should be, if we really hear Jesus' message here, is that we should actually be people that aren't freaking out and aren't wandering because of the information that's in front of us. So when someone starts saying, you understand, where this, you know, you know, what's up with Trump? And he's going to wind up, you know, oh, it's the end of the world. The end of the world for some people, maybe, but not the end of the world for, the, for what the Bible says, for the world. But isn't that what we've been saying about Brexit? There have been people here that are like, you don't realize if we leave the European Union, what will happen? We'll all cease to exist. We'll just spontaneously combust and turn into dust. Because only Europeans can live. Now look at I'm not political to get on either side of this. I'm on God's side on this. And as a representative of my father, I'm here to say stop freaking out and stop looking in the wrong directions. What he's going to show us here in a moment, the two things we always need to keep our eyes on are Israel and the church, interestingly enough. So you ready to go through our three stops? Yes, yeah, good. I'm just giving you a little help here. because I know, I know we're in a culture where I know you're inside right now. You are like cheerleaders. But we're a lot more sedate on the outside. Okay, here's the first of them, verses 7 and 8. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, literally in lots of places all over. All over is the idea. And these are all the beginning, again, I remind you, of birth pangs. Then notice in verse 9 it starts with the word then, which tells us that's, that's the next stop. So we're in, verse, we're in the first stop, verses 7 and 8. And might I say, our first stop is this, the globalization of problems. He tells us, by the way, in this, that nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. What's that? That's a world war. He says, by the way, did you notice? It seems to me like there'll be more than one of these. And Jesus tells us, This is an an essential stop, but it's only the first stop. It's not the end of the world. And because it's not the end of the world, let's face it, if you were on a bus, and and I don't know if you're like this, I'm the kind of guy that lays out my clothes the night before, so when I'm on a train or a bus, I'd like to know what the stop is before mine, because I know at that point I'm going to try to get up so that I'm not dashing for the door trying to run over some poor older fella, you know, on my way out. So I try to get ahead of that. But I don't try to learn what the 15 stops are before that. A couple might be good, but definitely the one before. But if I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to know my third stop before that, well then I'm really going to get I'm be premature and actually being by the door. And the only reason I say that is, is this is the first stop of three, but it is an important one. It is, it is actually a landmark, but it's not the stop you need to look for first. So this is what he tells us. There will be world wars that we read. Then it says then there will be famines. But notice it says famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in, if you will, lots of places, various places. There was a globalization then, a famine. 
We become very aware of world hunger. Now, do you know how hard it is to find out? I know if I could, I'm going to sound like my youngest daughter who's just blunt about things like this. Do you know how hard it is to find out how many people starved to death last year? Because everyone wants to tell you how many people are hungry, how many people are, are malnourished. But no one wants to tell you how many people actually starved to death. But have we ever been so aware of people starving in places we've never met before as we are in this particular age? But it's not just that. He tells us that there will be pestilences in various places. Now, what are pestilences? Does anyone know? Yeah, pestilences are diseases. Now, think about it in the last 10, 15 years. AIDS, SARS, Ebola. Do you remember when those things were threatened to be like taking over the world? Zika? We've got a couple of new fresh ones, by the way. Human monkeypox. I don't even know what that is. I clearly don't want it. And there's a new bird flu, aviary flu, by the way. I don't want that either. So if you get them both, you're like, you know, eating bananas and sitting on the top of a tree somewhere. But anyways, I mean, the whole point of it is, is that we become aware of the fact that the way that Ebola came to us even a couple of years ago, we, it was like, if we don't nail this thing right from the beginning, it's going to take over the world. Wasn't that kind of the way the media was pitching it? That's the way that, it, we, that AIDS was being pitched, by the way, back in the late 80s. Do you remember SARS? The idea of an acute respiratory problem? And I remember being told about places in the world where, because the governments were too proud to get honest figures from the World Health Organization, where what would happen is they would take the people who were really that were very ill and they would pile them up in ambulances and drive them around while the inspectors were, were inspecting the, the hospitals so that the numbers wouldn't be so high. It's crazy when you've got a government like that. The good news is it wasn't here. And just recently, this whole Zika issue, as you're aware of, I mean, it freaks you out, doesn't it, when it's something that can be spread from like a mosquito? I mean, let's face it. Is there, I, you know, I don't have a lot of questions to ask God. I'm sure I won't actually ask them when I get there, but the mosquito will be one. Why, 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 I don't really, reminds me we're in a fallen world. Here's the point in the beginning of this. As we start viewing the problems of the world globally, now, that's our first stop. Now, when was the last time, let's, let's, let's be generous and go to the 50s and say before the 1950s when we actually started looking at a lot of these things, when was the last time we really saw something that was fairly, really, really all-encompassing that really freaked out the world? To be honest, it was something centralized here as well, the plague. It was something where we became aware. Now, do you know what happened during the time of the plague? Many people that were calling themselves Christians were saying it was the end of the world, that this was God's judgment to kill all mankind. To which, if they read their Bible, if they had just read this much, that would have been enough to say, this is the beginning, but it's not the end of it. Now, the problem is, is that this is, if you will, the earth's first baby. I mean, the whole universe, of course, is going to end on this. But the reason I say that is, is that when you were your first baby, you kind of just, you start feeling, you know, you could have banded ingestion. You think you're going into labor. Because you really have nothing to compare it to. And then when you actually go into labor, you're like, oh, this is different. Yeah, this is very different than the things I've experienced before this. I've had a really bad burrito, but nothing like this. And the reason I say that is, is because we don't have anything to compare it to, we just say it's the end of the world, when truth be told, it really isn't. That's what we see here. So stop one. A globalization 
of understanding of the world's problems, primarily that of war, hunger, that of epidemics, and that of earthquakes. Notice that's the other thing it says in various places. Do you know that this year, that's 2016, we're not even done with it yet, there have been over 11,055 earthquakes that are at least 4.0 or higher in the world? Do you know 6.0 or higher, there have been 115? I mean, we're aware of the fact that they've been happening recently in Italy. And to be honest, I don't think anyone there is confident that they're, going to be, that they're done. Everyone's still waiting for California to fall into the sea. And they've discovered a brand new fault this year. Happy, happy California. See, we leave and look at what happens. The whole thing falls apart. And the only reason I say that is, is that there have been seasons, but let me say that this is actually a relatively low year for earthquakes compared to the last decade. There have been, in some cases, twice as many. And the only reason I say that is, is that if you were around, let's say, during the Haitian earthquake, or the one in Japan, that was a nine point, I believe is what it was, 9.1. You probably would have thought it was the end of the world then. Two doomsday cults were born, by the way, right after that particular uh, 9.1 earthquake in Japan, for what it's worth. So there's our first stop, is that we become very aware, we're keenly aware now of these things. Right now, for what it's worth, there are at least 16 different wars taking place in 2016 where over 1,000 people have died. Because, I mean, it's interesting when you actually look at the Wikipedia page. There's several different sites for it. I try to go with several and make sure that I have consistent numbers. But, uh, and that the wording isn't exactly the same where they're just cutting and pasting. What's interesting, they have, like, they have major wars, minor wars, altercations, and then scurries or scuffles. I don't know, like, like 50 people die. It's just a scurry, I guess. But, but what I found interesting, though, was that at least four different things have taken place this year alone. More over 10,000 people have died because of armed conflict. That's pretty radical. Yeah, so we're aware of those things to some degree. But I remind you, that's only our first stop. Verse 9. Then. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. This is our second step. The first was a globalization of problems, if you will, the second is a globalization of persecution and its results. You know, what's interesting is, if you will, the first we kind of see globally what the world looks like, without, if you will, what a godless world looks like. And the second, we see politically what a godless world looks like. Now, look at the verbiage because it's really important to me. <laughs> because there's something here that really stands out stark. First of all, it says they. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us who the they are. Well, let's get aware of that. So if you're the kind that's given over to paranoia, that probably will really freak you out. They will deliver you up to tribulation. The word tribulation, by the way, it's a real common word. The word is flipsies. It means to be pressed from all sides. So you, the idea that you're being, you know, if you remember those movies, uh, I think it was in Star Wars and in uh, Indiana Jones, those kind of movies where the walls and the ceilings were all coming in at the same time. You ever have life where you feel like that? Well, that's flipsies. That's this word. And so these people are going to, they're going to, if you will, according to this, they'll deliver you up to this and then they'll kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You won't be hated by all nations because you're a Christian or call yourself one. You'll be hated by all nations because of the name of Jesus. And that's very different. 
There's a whole lot of people out there that don't mind being religious and even calling themselves Christian in a circle where it's safe. But when you bring up the name of Jesus in other circles, they're not going to be anywhere near you when you start talking like that because they know there's going to be persecution. But to this point, it's to death. But understand, that's only part of this particular text. He says, and, and notice, he, there's no place in the world he's going to say, you're going to actually be able to go and say, well, that's a Christian country, I'm safe there. Now, let's face it, up to this point, to be honest, the two places where people have thought would be safe havens were really the UK and the United States. Those were the two places. And neither one of them seems to be enormously friendly right now to that. And whether the, you know, it's, like, it's amazing how many laws are being brought out at the moment to try to keep you from, from not being religious. Not from having church, but from you sharing the name of Jesus with someone else. Every pastor back on the central coast of California was allowed an opportunity to pray at the beginning of the civil meeting that was sort of, if you will, like the town hall meeting of all the mayor and all of those guys. So I had my chance. And they said, we just want to let you know ahead of time, you really can't bring in the name of Jesus. I'm like, well, but I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian pastor. Yes, we know that. Well, look at the Buddhist guy actually did mention Buddha. That was okay. The Muslim man actually did mention Allah. But we really don't want you mentioning Jesus because it seems to really bother some of the people on the council. Are you okay with that? And I'm like, well, how in the world could I be okay with that? And the person walked away. They never, they, I never had, the good news is I never had to commit to it or anything. But they were like, well, that's just kind of the way it is. I'm like, okay, that's the way it is for you. And I went in there, of course, and I'm like, I just want to thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. And of course, you know, it's, it's like, I, the good news is this particular voice, even when the mic shut off, I was still going. I, needless to say, I wasn't invited again. But I really wanted everyone there to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, because this was the one chance they were going to get. We used to do these things that were sunrise services, and, and we were, we, um, that was also on rotation. We were given the opportunity to do that, and we give an altar call. And we were approached by one of the leaders of the clergy in our area that was extremely angry. And she's like, you don't understand. Don't do altar calls. I'm like, well, and an altar call, by the way, if you don't know, it doesn't mean we're calling everyone forward so they can kneel down. And, and that could be the case in some places. But for us, the issue is, do you want to accept the gift of Jesus Christ or not? That was the point. She says, it steals parishioners. And you go, well, if you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving them a chance, well, to be honest, I hope they leave. They don't have to come to our church, but I hope they go someplace where they can hear the truth. And the whole point of it is this. Is sooner or later, the world's going to say, we don't have a problem with you guys joining hands and singing Kumbaya. We don't have a problem with your irritating shirts as much or you know, the fact that you vote in ways we don't agree with. But what we really have a problem with is this name Jesus. So shut up about that and we're going to be okay. And look how far it's gone now. You could get fired for wearing a cross at your workplace. A cross. You could just tell them, well, it's actually an X. It just turned sideways. I mean, the, the, it's, we, it's so crazy how much ground we give up. And he says, look it, I want to let you know, this is actually the second stop on this, but the startling part's the second half. Notice he says, and then many, many, now, notice he doesn't say they. So Jesus has to use another term that excludes the they. So the question is, who are the many? Well, according to the way that it works in the Greek, and if I could just say this simply, you always build on your last particular focus, is you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many of you. And that becomes the startling part of this. You see, it wasn't just that the world's going to have a problem with you. Yeah, get over it. It's going to happen. 
It isn't just the fact, to be honest, that some people are going to be dragged out and killed. We know that there are at least 7,000 people this year alone who have been killed for the name of Jesus Christ. This is the startling part of this is when you start looking at the church. You know what the church starts doing? Notice, by the way, the term in verse 9, it tells us that you will be hated by all nations. And then it says in verse 10, you'll hate one another. So you will take the hatred of the world and you'll turn on each other with it. So you know what happens somewhere in this second stop? The hate the church church is what happens. We're kind of Christians, but we're Christians in a way that God is going to kind of mildly let us in or whatever because we set our own rules. In other words, if you will, it's the church of Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And then what happens is another group of people, and you're the closed-minded, you're the bigot, you're the fundamentalist, and we know how bad that term is. You know, and it's like you're all of these things, that, which, by the way, should be compliments, not bigots, but in fundamental. I believe in every fundamental in Scripture. I do. That's all it means. Do I believe in the fundamentals of Islam? Of course not. But a fundamentalist is someone who believes in the fundamentals. In other words, they believe in their book. And I believe in this book. And I believe in the God of this book. And I believe that the God of this book is going to wrap things up and I'm going to stand with him. And he tells us, I want to warn you. There are going to be a lot of people out there calling themselves Christians and they're going to hate you for this. Because you're blowing it for them. Because, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're just happy to kind of blend in with the woodwork and somehow in it not go to hell, but really not be effective. Look, and I'm not trying to pass judgment on that because I don't know who the they are in this or the, or the others. I just know this. I don't want to be part of it. How about you? Because you really want to look at the second stop. What you're going to start doing is start looking at the church. And when you start looking at the church, what you're going to see is, notice it says, many will be offended. That's the first thing in verse 10. The word there is scandalizo. It means to trip to fall or to entrap. Because many of these people are going to, if you will, many people are going to fall away. Many people are going to trip up. Why? Because the world is not applauding your choice to choose Jesus. And then, notice it says, and then many will betray one another. Betray. Pardidomi. Literally, to yield up, to give over. They're the ones calling the anonymous tips. Oh yeah, this person really does preach. He preaches hate because he tells you you're a sinner and Jesus wants to forgive that. And they'll hate one another. Because you really want to see the second stop, look at the church. Not at the world. The world's going to have a problem with the church. And somewhere in it, so that tells me somewhere down the line the church was doing it right and the world hated it. And as the church starts doing it right and the world hates it, much of the church is going to join in with the world to kick the church, to kick the Christians who are really doing God's work. Do you know how much easier it is to criticize a televangelist than it is to evangelize? And I have a rule. I cannot criticize any European football player because I don't play football. I wasn't allowed to because I studied martial arts and I was told it would destroy my form. I have no right because I don't play. I don't look and go, oh, look at how lazy that guy is because to be honest, I wouldn't want to run around a field for 90 minutes anymore at all. I have respect for people that do. There are other sports that I've played, and I feel like at least back in the day, I might have been able to say something. I coached for a while, so at least I was able. I'm sure you could go out there, and I've had to go out there and do it. But I also know that when it comes to something I've never done, I have no right to say anything. That's why I always think it's interesting who's quick to criticize. But let's be honest. If we're in that place where all we can do is criticize some guy, and let's say there are guys out there that aren't doing it right. But a guy that stands on a street corner and starts yelling, hey, that's not my approach. I wouldn't do it that way. That's just not me. But I am out sharing Jesus with people. 
but I'm not going to criticize him because I can't tell you the Lord hasn't told him to do it. And I have a lot more respect for a guy that's out there even making that kind of noise than for a person who does nothing but criticizes him. And we can get suckered in to pointing the finger at other Christians. And let me remind you, who is the accuser of the brethren? And if you sit down to listen to him for a moment, he'll give you the whole show. The first stop, we become very keenly aware of the world's problems. The second, we have a global persecution and the church responds by joining in the persecution because they'd rather not be persecuted. And the only way to do that is to join the other side. But that's still not the end. That's just the second stop of three. But now you're getting up off your seat because now you know the stop's getting, we're getting to that stop. The third now, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There's a deceive again. Remember, cause to wander. Deception is paramount in the last days. Then many false prophets will rise up, will deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will go cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be, pre- will be preached, and all the world is a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Step three, global religious deception. Step one, global world problems. Step two, global persecution and the church following suit. But see, God gave us a hunger for the spiritual world to call out to him. So you don't remove it, you replace it. Did you notice that the false Christs were actually at the first stop, but the third stop was false prophets? Did you notice that? Because by this point, it's not going to be about Jesus at all. It's going to be about tolerance. Can I make this clear? The Bible teaches us we are to be tolerant and intolerant. Tolerant to personality, intolerant to sin. Let me say that again. Tolerant to personality, intolerant to sin. And the church has flipped them. We hate each other because we don't get along, but we're tolerant to the things that kill us. He's like, that's not the way it works. So here's the third step. False prophets will rise up. Notice the term he uses. It doesn't say that they'll show up, but they'll rise up. What's the difference? First John 2.9 tells us this. He says, by the way, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have already come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were really of us. In other words, he says this. They were, they were among us. But then they went and grabbed a bunch of people and led them away because they never really were of us. In this case, he was speaking of antichrists. I remind you, antichrist means somebody who seeks to replace Christ or stands against him. Because these guys are going to rise up and notice it says, and deceive many. Which tells us that both the false prophets here in verse 11 and the false Christs that started this both deceive many. They'll both be rather effective. We know that from the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that next week, where one false prophet will rise up and the whole world will seem to follow him. But the scary part, if you will, or if you will, the eye-opening part is verse 12. It says, because lawlessness will abound. And the word there is the idea of it being overflowing. The love of many will grow cold. Did you see the word because? So let me ask you, 
What makes love grow cold, according to this verse? Lawlessness. Is that weird? So wait a minute. Submitting to the law of God will cause me to love? How crazy is that? Well, I can tell you this. Not submitting to the law of God will cause me not to. And what he makes here is he, he denotes a marriage between the willingness of the law and the warmth of love. And you know, we could say, you know what, look at I'm going to do it my own way. But I guarantee you, the moment you start doing it your own way and you create your own laws, there will be no love in that. Even though often it's touted as love. This is how we love our nation. This is how we love our people. This is how we love all mankind. This is how we love our world. But in the end, when you're creating the rules and not submitting to God's, you can never have God's love through man's ways. He tells us, look at Do you know what it'll look like at the end? It'll look like a lawless, loveless place. But it won't be unreligious. Did you notice that? There'll be many prophets. They'll just be false ones. But there'll be many guys out there saying they're spokesmen for God. So it will be a religious environment without the law and without the love. But he who endures, interesting the word endure, upamene, literally means willing to stand under. There is a submission to that. Because remember the idea of it is? Those who are willing to stand under what? God's law. Now I'm not talking about we're going to go and submit ourselves to the Ten Commandments and then we're going to go into the 613 commandments that are all in there and we keep kosher law and all those things. But Jesus has made really clear, for instance, that we start with two simple ones. To love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He says, start with that. Watch everything else fall on the line. And you're like, I don't need to do that. I don't need to love you with everything. I need to love me with everything. Isn't that what the world teaches me? And then once I love me with everything, well, then I need to love those people that I think will benefit me. Do something kind for a photo op. But there's no real love in that. So we who will actually seek to keep the law of God will be considered idiots and bigots, closed-minded, suspect, and even for the most part, completely irrelevant to a predominantly liberal world around us. But you notice Jesus didn't say that was the end. He could have said, well, at this point now, let's face it, the world's just gone into the toilet. Let's just flush. What he did say is, verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. I am not going to, God's like, I'm not going to wrap up this world without giving everyone an honest chance to say yes to me. Do you realize how loving that is? when the whole world is in essence fleeing from anything that God has to offer them. They don't want anything. They're, they're shaking their fist at God and they're angry at God. And they're like, I don't want you. I don't want you. Give me a world without you. And then they're like, if there's a loving God, well then how can the world be like this? And God's like, because you didn't want me there. And then in all of that, he's like, look at, I am not going to wrap this thing up until, and when we get to book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 6, we're going to read that angels span the entire earth preaching, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Man, it's like, look at it. Even if you're like, well, what about that guy on an island that's kind of there by himself? First of all, how did a guy get by himself in an island? But anyways, beyond all of that, he's still going to hear the angels spanning the earth. The point is, God's going to make sure that you are going to have a choice before you face him. That's the way that that works. And look at how this works out. So <clears throat> follow me on this for a moment as we kind of wrap this up, because we're at the point now where we have to realize, what do we do about all of this now? Well, first of all, let's be honest. The two basic things, first of all, is stop freaking out 
and stop being led astray by the wrong things. Let's focus on what we're supposed to. If we sit under the law of God, seek to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength in each other, and we go there first, well, maybe we find ourselves doing what we're supposed to be doing and not freaking out over all of this. Because we have a world beyond this one. So when class is dismissed, we'll be very happy about it. But here are the three points. First was this global view of the problems of the world. Then the second was this global persecution. And then the third, and and in that persecution, if you will, God's people joined in it. Or those claiming to be. And then the third one, then after all of that, was this place, as we look here, of global loveless religion. But it was also a place, if you will, of global domination. And the reason I say that is, is that back when Daniel prophesied about the kingdoms that would come, he started to tell us about them. But I'd like you to consider this. Jesus has come once. But it started with Babylon. Well, the Syrians, but Babylon all the same. Because what Babylon did is it, it actually, for the first time, made people start to think globally. Babylon started to conquer so much ground. This is what we're talking about now in the 700s. Well, actually, primarily in the 500s uh, B.C. That they conquered so much ground that they actually started to look at, say, it was, it was global domination. And the, one of the things they said was that in the midst of all of this is that they wanted to, v- to show you that there were problems that were actually global. And because the problems were global, they needed to rule over everything. So it started with that. So they got everyone thinking globally. But then came the Greeks. And when the Greeks came in, they started persecuting. They began the persecution of the Christians. But not only did they begin the, the, the persecution of the Christians, they also did a couple other things they actually universalized the language. The only time since the, the uh, <coughs> excuse me, if you will, since the Tower of Babel where everyone actually that was in sort of the known civilized world spoke the same language. They still spoke their own. I mean, like in this room right now, I would say for the most part, we all speak English to some degree. You can decide for me whether I speak English or not. But in that, many of us speak other languages as well. But we all have that language we can communicate in. And in the same way, you still had your own language from the, if you, were in, if you will, your nation of origin. But we all could communicate in Koine Greek. Koine, like koinonia, means common. It was the common language, the trade language of the day. So the Babylonians got us thinking globally. The Greeks got us speaking globally, even though a lot of it involved persecution. And then came the Romans. And when the Romans came, they dominated, set up their own religion, but they paved every road that they could. And they built ports all over the world, at least all over their known empire. And then Jesus came. They got the people thinking globally. Then they got everyone being able to speak in a common language. And then they built the place so that you could get the message out to everyone. And then Jesus came. So, we already thought globally, we could all speak to each other and get Jesus out to everyone. And the Romans even built the roads for us to get there and ports so we could actually ship over to where we, where we needed to. I see how Jesus would show up when he did. How about you? Now, look at our three steps. Gets us thinking globally about global world problems. I get it. A global persecution where everyone starts speaking and ultimately a common language. And then after all of that, there'll be a global religion. But the gospel is going to get around the whole world and then Jesus is going to show up again. 
Because he is not going to let somebody show up to him ignorant of the choice that he's responsible for. As we go to prayer, beloved, do you realize how beautiful this is? He could have just said, you know, the world's going to fall apart, it's going to be stupid, and then after the whole thing's stupid, let's just face it, I'm just going to blow the whole thing up and say, this was dumb, why did I even do this? But he never gives up on these people until the, and he never gives them a chance to the very end. But I want to remind you what Jesus taught us in Luke 21 in the countertext to this. You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, in a cloud with power and great glory. <clears throat> and he says, when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. See, what Jesus wanted to teach us was, <clears throat> the reason you're freaking out is you're looking in the wrong direction. If you look up and you realize I'm coming, you'll never have to worry. And that will bring you the peace you need in a time like this. So there will be a time soon where we will see Jesus. And as we saw him crucified and resurrected to give us a new life, our old, guilty, filthy world was atoned for at the cross. Vanquished, paid in full, finished. But the death of our old life was the birth of our new. And in the same way, the death of this whole thing, I'm not saying let's all go out and buy complex fluorocarbons and just spray them into the air, try to see if we can figure out how to dump more methane into the ozone. What I am saying is this, is that if this world is going to go, and and I think we have a very bloated view of ourselves to think we can stop that, we couldn't stop the Titanic, and that's a whole lot smaller than the world. It isn't the ozone that's killing the world. It's sin. It's a refusal for us to embrace the Creator who made it for us. So is it uncool for Him or cruel for Him to wrap this whole thing up and give us a better place for us to live with Him? I'm good with moving. But I would like to take you with in that sense. And I'd like those around you to know that too. So I'm not asking you to throw a sandwich sign on you and go and stand on a street corner. The Lord tells you that that's his business. Not, I'm certainly not going to tell you that. But I am telling you this. There are people around you right now who are very unsettled by the turn of events. And I want you to realize that is prime opportunity. They're like, oh, you look really freaked out. Yes, I'm freaked out. Don't you realize who's the president? No, no, no. I couldn't have done that better than the whole siren thing. Thanks, Lord. And at that moment, you could be like, well, I'm going to be sympathetic and freak out with you. I'd be like, you know what? I'm good. You want to know why I'm good? Because this is temporary. And my God is still in control. He's still on the throne and he still loves me and he still loves you. And he shows me there's a whole new life and he wants you to have it right now. And he wants you to taste and see how good he is now. So when these things happen, you know, at worst, they're going to destroy the hotel room you're staying in. And I want to pray right now for us. Because I want to send us out of this locker room into the field to let people know that God is going to shake that which is shakable, that that which is unshakable would remain. Are you ready to go get them? I am. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here. 
how you're speaking to us and challenging us and pulling us forward. And we recognize, Lord, we look around and it is disturbing to see the things around us. I'm not talking about the presidency. I'm just talking about the famines and the world and the the earthquakes and and just the, the complete unrest and all of that. And Lord, the last of our concerns, to be honest, is Brexit or the presidency or all of those things. Our first concern is that the church represent you accurately. Not as a lawless, loner, maverick, loose cannon, but as a family joyfully underneath a loving father and gloriously embraced by a loving Jesus. So please, today, you promise to keep us in perfect peace in Isaiah if our minds are stayed on you. Stay our minds on you. That we could be the one peaceful thing in the midst of tumult, the eye of the storms. And when people seek to find out why, or may we, may we even be proactive to offer, may we let them know it's because my God has transformed me. And I know of new life. A life that is no longer enslaved by the confines of this world in regards to this is as good as it gets. This is as bad as it gets for us. And we represent heaven. So Lord, make us people that truly represent you right. So Lord, please, today, here in this room, recommandeer our focus, our perspective. Settle our hearts. And make us people today, Lord, that would say, even so, come quickly, Lord, please. Because when we see these things, we're to look up because our redemption draws near. And we pray, Lord, for the church. For the church in Mass that often seeks to embrace so many of the world's standards instead of your biblical standard. Bring us back to your word please. And make us people that in joyful surrender to your, to your standards love one another as we should by loving you first with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then as you pour back an overflow, Lord, may we spill that on each other as we should. Jesus, we do confess you died on the cross to pay for all of the world's sins. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. you are also the resurrected Lord who shows us as the first fruits of those who have died and risen what new life looks like. May we live that new life now. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and pray now that you would be glorified. And as you send us out of here, send us out of here ready, Lord. We pray this week for divine, divine meetings with people who will actually be exactly what you spoke of here, that we will be ready, our hearts will be ready. And you will remind us, Lord, how we're to be representatives of peace, sowing in peace as those who make peace. So, prepare us now, I pray. And I pray, Lord, for those who uh, next week, Lord, might even come frightened of the book of Revelation. Just add, I pray, Lord, you would bring 
an army of people to see how good you are, even as we see here. You are not going to let this wrap up without your gospel going forth. And so here in this last moment, you realize the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins according to Scripture. He was buried. And just as Scripture promised on the third day, He rose again. And then He was seen by a lot of people. And here was a testifier of that resurrection. I remind you, Jesus has left us the choice to accept His payment for our guilt or not. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ for your guilt, I know the Holy Spirit's working on you right now saying, you need to do that. Pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I am a sinner. And as a sinner, I stand guilty before you on my own merit, but I believe Jesus did die for my sins just as your scripture promised. So that the bill is paid. I was paid for in full. All my crimes in my heart punished. He was buried and just like Scripture promised on the third day, He rose again to offer me new life and I say yes. I make the choice to say yes to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So have me now. As this world is expiring and I don't have to be brilliant to figure that out, thank you for giving me a home beyond it so I don't have to fear. So I commit myself to you in Jesus' name and if you believe that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers now. Make us now, Lord, the instruments of peace this world around us needs. In Jesus' name.